tonight, you'll want to get out your sermon outline. It's good to see the Godas here today. Huh? Two weeks now. Just an old married couple already. Glad you're here. And Andrew and Allison, this is it. One more week. All right. Excited. So it's great that today we're talking about marriage. So it has nothing to do with either of these couples. Um, it's just the way it fell providentially. So who knew? Uh, obviously God did. So it has a lot more to say to the rest of you, uh, actually. Um, so let's get to it. First Corinthians chapter 7, as we race through all these non-controversial passages in Corinthians. Um, we are at 1 Corinthians 7. I'm going to read the first 16 verses. And uh, we have to remember, this is God's word. He wants to teach us. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. As always, we need it desperately. We need to be reminded the greatness of the gospel and the power of the cross and the glory of Christ, we need to know the sufficiency of your word 
for all the problems of our lives. We need to know that whatever we struggle with as individuals, even in this area of sex and sexuality and marriage and singleness, that the answer to those issues are found in Christ. Thank you that Corinthians is a love letter to unlovely people pointing us to Jesus. We need him. Bring us to him. Bring us the grace of repentance. Soften our hearts. Have mercy on us. And so we pray by the power of the Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, before we get started, let me say how much I appreciate the Christian satire site, the Babylon Bee, for going over our sermon series in advance and writing articles that I can use as sermon illustrations. Obviously, knowing that I was going to preach on the subject of marriage, they published one such article on Thursday with the title, Women in Singles Ministry Gets Married, Promoted to Real Christian. It reads, Judy Birch has been a proud member of Flying Solo, the singles ministry at First Church, for 12 years, but was finally promoted to a real Christian after getting married this weekend. We'd like to welcome Judy to real Christianity and the real church now, Pastor Judd said at a special welcome luncheon. After years of pretending to be a Christian in our singles ministry, she's ready to join the big leagues. Way to go, Judy, he added. The church presents each member who graduates the singles ministry and joins the church's real ministries with a gift Bible, a devotional, and a commemorative plaque with church leaders confirming that of their 150 singles, only a few are able to escape the purgatory of singles ministry and make it into the kingdom of God. Judy's our first convert to the real faith this year, so we're excited to see if we see an uptick in conversions from singles ministry to Christian converts. As part of her induction into the faith, Judy will be expected to host a small group, contribute to the bake sale, and pump out at least five kids to support the church's aggressive growth strategy. Again, that's a satire. Or at least it's supposed to be. One of the reasons for the effectiveness of the Babylon Bee is just how close they inch to the truth. But the sad reality, without the five kids part, is that singles have told me for years that they often feel that the church pretty much treats them just like that. And that's terrible. And while the church is pro-marriage, it should also be pro-single. Just because we say that one thing, being married, is good, shouldn't mean that the other thing, being single, is bad. It's easy to forget that not only was the Apostle Paul single, so was our Lord Jesus. And in our passage today, Paul makes it clear while the biblical pattern may be for people to get married, those who are called to singleness are actually better off. And yet while there's advantages and disadvantages to both, and while there's beauty and difficulty in both, there's little doubt that both are hard. There's no easy out here. It's hard to be married it's hard to be single. But the gospel brings hope to what's hard. And so with that said, let's turn to our passage, 1 Corinthians 7. And I'm going to tackle this passage a little differently today. 
my intention is to look at the whole passage from three different angles. Normally, I try to break it down into teachable units, but today we're going to look at the whole from three different perspectives. So let's get started. And first, we're going to look at the hard and beautiful. The hard and beautiful. Sort of set the stage, you have to understand the Corinthian culture was essentially hedonistic which means they were self-indulgent seekers of pleasure. And Paul's already addressed the topic of sexual immorality in the context of the local church. Some members of the church were visiting prostitutes because prostitution was socially acceptable and was actually more the norm than the exception. The Corinthian culture believed that marriage was not the place for one to experience sexual fulfillment. So some Christians reacted to this by being ascetic. Now, an ascetic is someone who practices self-denial as a spiritual discipline. It was right to react to the hedonism of the culture, especially in light of the fact that it was creeping into the church, but this is a massive overreaction. And Paul is answering the question, and we get that at the quote up front. They asked him the question or made the statement to him, in verse 1, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And if you stop and think about it, there are similar issues in our day. The broader culture is extremely hedonistic in its approach to sexuality. And Christians have often been criticized of being way too ascetic, although they would never use that term. They would say we're just too prudish or straight-laced or narrow-minded. And against these two extremes of essentially anything goes and nothing, Paul gives us a balanced and humanizing view of sexuality. Hedonism says it just doesn't matter. The body is morally neutral. As long as there's, there are consenting adults, there are no, no moral implications. Which tells us that consent, while needed and necessary, is in and of itself not enough. You can give consent to a lot of harmful and unbiblical practices, and just having consent doesn't redeem them. It merely permits them. Sadly, this view ultimately dehumanizes the participants by removing the soul from the picture of sexuality. Asceticism, on the other hand, um, says don't have sex with anyone ever. The body is morally evil. And even within the context of marriage, sexuality is viewed as a weakness at best and potentially sinful at worst. And this view also dehumanizes individuals by rejecting an essential part of their humanity, which is the body. So asceticism over-spiritualizes human beings. So on the one hand, we have hedonism downplaying the soul, and on the other hand, we have asceticism downplaying the body. It's becoming understandable why the Corinthians are so confused. They don't know what to do. And so the Apostle Paul teaches them a beautiful, humanizing view of sexuality. He wants them to know that biblical sexuality promotes a one-man, one-woman covenant relationship known as marriage. It declares that the body is both good and beautiful. 
God has given us bodies for his glory and our good. I spoke about that last week. If you missed, I encourage you to go back and hear that or read that. Sexuality is healthy when it's expressed in the context that God designed it. Um, but not only is the body good and beautiful, the one man, one woman covenant relationship also demonstrates the value of the soul. The co-mingling of souls is what gives meaning to human sexuality. It ultimately humanizes individuals by affirming both the body and the soul. Biblical sexuality is, as far as I know, the only view of sexuality that properly accounts for both body and soul. Now, our text does not explicitly teach uh, the idea of oneness, but it implicitly assumes it. Paul's view of marriage is dependent on the teachings of Jesus, which has as its foundation the Genesis account of creation. In Mark chapter 10, uh, Jesus says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So marriage is a one flesh union and is intended to be a literal melding of identities. As I said, a commingling of souls. All other aspects of our identity take a back seat to the oneness that we now share with our spouse. This is the beautiful relationship that actually forms all other relationships. Relationship to one's family, friends, even yourself, change with marriage. The Bible views sexuality within the context of marriage as the primary picture of the beauty of oneness. We see this in Paul's description of the relationship of a husband and wife in verse 4. It says the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So in a healthy marriage, there's this beautiful giving up of one's autonomy to the other. And ultimately, the oneness of a couple is intended to be drawn from and point to their mutual relationship to the Lord. So how is the beauty of oneness maintained over time? And the question gives us two answers. They're, they're fairly simple. They're there in your outline, the first of which is service. Service. The general witness of Scripture is that a beautiful marriage is maintained when a husband and wife put each other's needs before his or her own, and this is expressed through selfless service. Paul says in Philippians 2 regarding the church that we should put other people's interests before our own. In 1 Corinthians 7, the discussion of self-giving service is in the context of marriage and sexuality. Husband and wife are to complement one another, to serve the other in his or her weakness. So here the discussion of self-giving service revolves around the prevention of sexual immorality, which Paul addressed in the last chapter. He addresses it here. He says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. 
But I want you to notice in these verses, there's a beautiful balance on display in this other-serving relationship. You got to remember the world in which they lived and in which much of the world still lives today in a patriarchal society where male dominance is part and parcel of maintaining one's status and position, where the needs and desires of women uh, were and are rarely considered. Paul's teaching here is radically countercultural. Paul is claiming that women and men have equal rights in the bedroom. Paul envisions sexuality as a means of serving one's spouse. Aesthetics who claim the Bible's perspective on sex is limited to procreation are not reading this text. Paul acknowledges that human beings have passions and he envisions a healthy marriage in which these passions are exercised. To the aesthetic who views sexual activity as less than holy, Paul's counterargument is that couples do this in order to remain holy. The reason married individuals are married ultimately is to please God, which points to this goal of selfless service. Ultimately, selfless service uh, in marriage is intended to spur one another on to live a life that's pleasing to God. This is the aim of marriage, not merely happiness, but holiness. God calls us to be kind and great, gracious agents of sanctification. Now, you could do a whole lot with that term. But in the lives of our spouses. God uses us to make the other holy. And the Bible shows sexuality is a beautiful gift given to us by God as a blessing to be enjoyed within the context of a faithful marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. Now that's the first answer to the question, how is oneness maintained over time? Through self-giving service. But secondly, oneness is maintained over time simply through commitment. Now, verses 10 through 16 contain Paul's instructions on how Christians should approach the great difficulties of marriage. Is divorce ever permissible? How should someone who comes to know Christ respond when his or her spouse is decidedly not a Christian? And although these verses deal with difficult cases, the underlying teaching is in regard to the beautiful commitment that lies at the heart of marriage. The Bible's seemingly strict views on divorce are derived from its even higher views of marriage. Marriage commitment is an objective reality that should not be altered. And Paul makes that clear. Verses 10 and 11, he says, To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Simply put, marriage is not to be interrupted by separation or terminated by divorce. The marriage commitment subjectively works itself out in steadfast love that's not determined or altered by emotions or changes in you and your spouse. Now, some singles make a false connection at this point. Some might say there has to be some principle that's going to allow me as a Christian single woman to marry this non-Christian man who's willing to come to church. The Bible is clear 
If a Christian is to marry, he or she needs to marry in the Lord. That will be repeated at the end of this chapter in verse 39. Wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But in a culture where marriage can be incredibly difficult, we also have to confront the hard and difficult. So we have the hard and beautiful, but now we have the hard and difficult. To be honest, marriage uh, in our culture is at an all-time low. Probably some nice way to say that. I don't know what it is. For all the cultural debate about marriage, all the numbers, surveys, studies show that marriage has seen better days. And this has led a number of people just to give up on marriage altogether. And even those who haven't given up um, can often see um, the difficulties of marriage. Some know the difficulties from firsthand experience. Some have personally experienced the pain of divorce. Some of you are married but have had a difficult experience up to this point. There's no shortage of the brokenness of marriage on display to the watching world. For others, this section of Paul's letter is really difficult to read because despite deep longings, many are not married. Now, the next section of chapter 7 will deal more directly with the issue of singleness, but hopefully it will answer some of those concerns more directly. But this passage does briefly address those who are single. And Paul highlights a few things. I think, first of all, he highlights that singleness is an ideal. Verse 6, he says, now as a concession, not a command. He's holding uh, this up as an ideal. Alongside marriage, he views singleness as a gift. In verse 7, he says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. He's not talking about spiritual gifts. He's talking about singleness and marriage, and that each can be a gift from God. For some, perhaps for many, singleness is a calling. Those who are currently single are called to be single at least for now. And in this particular season, this call is to live a holy life in anticipation of God's provision. Easier said than done. But at the same time, Paul knows that singleness can affect anyone at the deepest level. Often there are passions that burn deep inside of us, whether emotional or relational, and when they're unmet, it can be tormenting. This is part of the difficulty of marriage. Sin has so twisted marriage that for many unmarried people, it seems impossible to live without it. On the other hand, sin has so twisted marriage that for many married people, it seems impossible to live with it. So what do we do? Well, first of all, I think we have to address how it's been twisted and look at that and many people haven't bought into the beauty of oneness, so they lead divided lives. Practically speaking, even many married couples are living divided, separate lives. It's possible to be objectively one, there's a marriage license, but to live subjectively as two. It can be seen in the case of uh, separate beds or separate bank accounts. But it's really seen and there's no shared vision for life. 
There's two people in the marriage, but they've never understood what it means to be one. Nothing in their life demonstrates oneness. Everything is his or hers, and there's precious little that's ours. And divided lives often get expressed through selfishness. Could be selfishness through uh, ascetic withholding of one from the other, either emotionally or physically, or both. Paul speaking to Christians who are withholding themselves or something about themselves from their spouses. Something like this happens in modern marriages. Keeping oneself from one's spouse to get what you want or to get the upper hand. And it can become quite manipulative. And pretty soon the relationship looks like a commercial business deal. But on the other hand, divided lives can be manifested through hedonism. Elsewhere in Corinthians, we've encountered individuals who are letting their sexuality get them into all kinds of immoral situations. And modern marriages are victims of hedonistic exploration too. There's adultery and pornography and all sorts of anonymous, quick, easy, culturally acceptable ways to get satisfaction from someone other than your spouse. The source of the division in our marriages is usually and almost always selfishness. Instead of self-giving service, we're simply self-serving. And some people extol that. Uh, our approach to marriage is self-serving. Tara Parker Pope wrote an article in the New York Times. She entitled, The Happy Marriage is the Me Marriage. And in it, she says, quote, In modern relationships, people are looking for partners who make their lives more interesting, who help them attain their respective value goals. So marriage is supposed to be about us, but in our culture, it's become about me. It's all about me. And so how do people respond to that? Well, they think, you know, I need a perfect, compatible soulmate who will fulfill me. And that inevitably becomes a problem. That's very different from I want a friend who I can have a really deep friendship with and Tim Keller summarizes it this way. He says there's two key factors for this so-called new idealism. The first is physical attractiveness. In other words, the other person has to be really physically attractive. And second, there's this issue of compatibility, which means they wanted someone who has the willingness to take you in as you are and not try to change you. And that causes problems because oftentimes... Uh, there's resentment when one person wants to change the other. Uh, for the most part, men want a woman who fits into their lives. And that's what they think means to be truly compatible. And who will not try to change them. If that's what people want in a relationship, you're going to be single for a long time. A deeply devoted, loyal relationship requires a surrendering of one's independence. And people seem to think that this traditional approach to marriage, being committed, loyal, faithful, monogamous, self-giving, is oppressive. And the progressive view is actually liberating. And the irony is that it's the exact opposite. Because the progressive view that there's a perfect person out there who is going to be able to fulfill every need you have is utterly enslaving. 
reality shows us this is a completely unrealistic set of expectations placed on another person. And I am constantly amazed that I meet people who think that real marriage requires two completely well-adjusted individuals with little in the way of emotional needs and without any character flaws that need work. And that's what they want. A perfectly compatible soulmate who's well-adjusted, who's not emotionally needy, who's full of emotional wealth, and is very attractive. But even if that person, who doesn't actually exist, was found and pursued until the relationship started, it's still not going to work. It's immediately broken. Because you still have your side of the equation. And as soon as you show up, as soon as the person pursuing the relationship enters into it, they bring all sorts of issues and problems and baggage. It's kind of like, you know, people say they want to find the perfect church. Don't go there. It stops being perfect as soon as you walk through the door. Well, that whole perfect thing for marriage, it's the same way. It's an unrealistic uh, set of expectations. And the real problem is marriage begins with this self-serving purpose. And we'll soon discover that a spouse, any spouse, can't meet these expectations. Then that self-serving uh, purpose and posture just gets amplified. The self-serving approach just twists and distorts life within marriage. Sexuality, when the context of marriage ceases to be what it was meant to be, when it's just about the other person meeting your needs. When those who are one start acting like two, and when those who are called to serve one another are more interested in serving themselves, it leads to massive difficulties. So how is it possible to cultivate the beauty of marriage and not kill it? The beauty of marriage begins to overcome the difficulty of marriage when marriage ceases to be the most important relationship in your life. Let me say that again. The beauty of marriage begins to overcome the difficulty of marriage when marriage ceases to be the most important relationship in your life. Which means that marriage needs to follow the marriage model of Christ. The marriage model of so what Paul is trying to say is your marriage is meant to follow the pattern of the model marriage. And the model marriage is Jesus' relationship with his bride. Jesus is the bridegroom. He's the husband. He has a relationship with his bride, the church. And though marriage is a blessing, a gift, a calling, a place where Christians can find deep satisfaction, it's not designed to be the source of ultimate satisfaction. Expecting marriage to satisfy your longing or meet your needs or bring you happiness can smother the other person, creating resentment. On the other hand, that view can also stir resentment uh, in you towards the other person for their inability to satisfy your expectations. Unrealistic expectations create a lose-lose environment. And all of this is the result of asking marriage to do something it was never intended to do. Ultimately, marriage just isn't about two people. 
Marriage is meant to model the marriage of Christ and the church. The New Testament tells us directly that this model is the marriage between Christ and his church. Ephesians 5, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Christian marriages are fulfilling their purpose when they display the profound mystery of Christ's love for his bride. How do the beauties of marriage begin to break through and overshadow the difficulties? If marriage is about modeling a greater marriage, then it's vital to get the instructions for how the greater marriage works. So the profound mystery of Christ, the only perfect person who lays down his life uh, through his sacrificial uh, life and death. When he sacrifices all that he has, when he gives up his rights and doesn't try to take advantage of them, he empties himself in order to meet the needs of a sinful bride. So let's look at the marriage of Christ and the church. Christ committed himself to the church as his bride. And this commitment comes when believers are at their sinful worst, as in the story of Hosea and Gomer. The love of God pursues an adulterous wife to the very end. There were no requirements attached to this commitment. There's no behavior that had to be maintained attached to this commitment. It's unbelievable. God has covenantally committed himself to an adulterous wife. And the adulterous wife is the church. God's covenantal commitment to his people is steadfast and unshakable. The radical grace of God is the source we need to be radically gracious to our spouse, either present or future. When one person in the marriage is content to see it break down, the other can remain steadfastly committed because of God's steadfast commitment to the church. This is what lies behind Paul's command that a believer who comes to faith after having been married ought to stay in the marriage, verses 12 and 13. Marriage is not about the benefits received, but the commitment made. And it's possible to remain faithful to one's commitment because of the ultimate commitment that Christ has made to the church. How does Christ display his covenantal commitment to the church? He seals it by giving himself away. He's not self-serving, but self-giving. He places the needs of his spouse above his own. He's completely other-focused. He keeps no record of wrongs. In fact, he sacrifices his life to erase the record of wrongs. And he doesn't even hang on to his record of rights, but gives them over to the church so she's spotless, clothed in his righteousness. Being the beneficiary of Christ's death-defeating, selfless service helps us to no longer keep a record of wrongs. Christians can now stop standing in judgment over their spouses because Christ absorbed the judgment they deserved. And they can selflessly serve their spouses because Jesus selflessly served his spouse, his bride, the church. Christ has mended and re-sown the torn fabric of the believer's relationship with God. The Old Testament actually describes the rift between God and Israel as a divorce. In Jeremiah, it says the sins of Israel 
piled so high, God finally sent his adulterous wife away with a decree of divorce. Jeremiah 3.8. Israel was exiled in Assyria because of her adultery. But Jesus was exiled on the cross because of our adultery. Jesus experienced division from the Father in order to secure our oneness with him. Because of our union with Christ, the one who experienced the divorce of the cross, we never have to fear being divorced from the love of God. Christ's vows to his bride are eternally unbreakable because they're sealed with his blood. In the church's marriage to Christ, it is not until death do us part. It is my death ensures that we will never be apart. That's the foundation for oneness in a marriage of divided lives. The union Christ has with the church is the foundation of a union between a husband and a wife. Marriage is beautiful, and it's meant to model this profound mystery of Christ in the church. His commitment, his selfless service, his union securing death turn difficulties into beauty. That's part of the profound mystery of the gospel. And once this is understood... You know, anyone can look across and see the perfectly wrong person who is her husband or the perfectly wrong person who is his wife and be able to say, marriage is not about me. It's about us. It's about meeting her needs. It's about meeting his needs. Here's the beauty. When an individual is pursuing his spouse's happiness and holiness, then that spouse will get happiness and the husband's happiness will increase. But when individuals pursue their own happiness, they get neither their own or their spouses. Perhaps those people will repeatedly wonder why they always seem to be stuck. Why there are more difficulties than beauties. Why they can't seem to make it work. Not always, but usually it's because they're stuck in self-service. The only way somebody can look at the wrong person in his or her marriage and for that person to become the right person is to know that the perfectly right person has come for the wrong person, for you and me, for all of us. That means we have to say to ourselves something like, when Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think, I'm giving myself to you because you're just so attractive. Oh, he's in agony and he looked down on us who were denying him and abandoning him and betraying him. And in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. He loved us not because we were lovely, but to make us lovely. That is why I'm going to love my spouse. Speak to your heart like that. And it will be so much easier to fulfill those promises you made or will make on your wedding day. The world doesn't understand the biblical view of marriage primarily because the world doesn't understand the commitment of Christ. The world doesn't understand that God cares deeply about sexuality and marriage. I'm going to repeat something I've said 
earlier, uh, not just in this series, but I think I've said it multiple times over many years. So I apologize to the, those of you who have heard it before. Um, but I think it's at the heart of God's design for marriage. Biblical marriage is a commitment that involves the whole person, body and soul. You can't just give one part of you away, just the body, without also giving away your soul. It's a package deal. And God says it's so volatile and at the same time so fragile, there's only one safe place for it, marriage. And I understand that we've touched on some sensitive issues over the last few weeks. And those points that hurt, those areas that hurt, those areas that need work and need attention, let Jesus be the master there. Let him lead you there. Let him guide you there. Let him teach you there. Let him uphold you there so that we might build marriages that are strong and lasting and honoring to God. The world will try to convince you that the Christian view on sexuality is too narrow and outdated for today's world. They're going to say something like, I don't like what Christianity says about this area of my life. But, and I'm quoting Keller here. If a doctor prescribes an unpleasant tasting medicine, what do you do? If you're truly sick, you take it. And it's just as wrong-headed to taste test Christianity as it is to taste test medicine. Christianity will not allow itself to be evaluated solely on its sexual ethics. It's because the real question is, is Jesus Christ really the Son of God? Is he who he said he is? Is he the way, the truth, and the life? Has he really died for you because you're a sinner? If he is and has, then who cares what he asks you to do or not to do? You should do it. In a sense, the gospel doesn't let you talk about anything else first. It says, I won't talk to you about marriage or sexuality or gender roles or suffering or anything else until you determine what you will do with him. Who he is determines everything else. But they object. Christianity is such a low view of sex. Really? The Christian view of sex is enormously lofty. The Bible says that sex points to the ultimate closure that we'll have with Christ in heaven. The Bible tells us that God made sex for marriage because it's capable of bringing so much glory and so much joy in your life that only two people fully committed to one another for a lifetime can receive it. No higher view is possible. It's not by coincidence that his chosen imagery to characterize his relationship with his people is the covenant of marriage. And hopefully, through these last several weeks, you've learned that the best marriages are the marriages that put Jesus first. Perhaps we should stop and pray that we do just that. And pray for the singles for a future marriage. Pray for your children and grandchildren and their future marriages. Pray for your marriage. Pray for those who are hurting. And we have a number. But let's take a moment to pray that we will put Jesus first. Do that and then I'll close after a minute.
Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Father in heaven, these are solemn issues that we've dealt with in these last few weeks. You know our hearts. You know our marriages. You know the marriages that are broken. You know the marriages that are in trouble. You know the husbands and wives who aren't speaking to each other. You know the husbands and wives who aren't relating to each other as husband and wife. So look for us as a church in mercy. Forgive us. Work in these weeks and months ahead of us through 1 Corinthians. Teach us who we are in Jesus. Strengthen us as we seek to live it out for your glory. As we begin to be changed by the gospel, grant that we can live like people called to be saints, united in fellowship, discerning spiritual truths, building on Christ, pursuing holiness, looking for cleansing. Know that we belong to you and that we're trying to put you first, not just in our lives, but in our relationships. And so we ask all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. God bless you. We'll see you later.